As you know, we are looking at items, issues that you brought to me from questions, and I'm actually going to read two different questions that are related in that they deal with the human body and our human, the destiny of our human body, the future of our human body. First one says, why, where does our church stand on cremation and why? <clears throat> cremation, of course, being the burning to ashes of a dead body. Cremation, by the way, is today handled in a very, uh, I would call it, proficient and professional way compared to some times in history and some places in history today. This is just information. Today, if you uh, decide or someone in your family to have their body, their deceased body, cremated, an industrial furnace is used, it's heated to 2,000 degrees, and that the flesh very quickly vaporizes. All that's left are bones, which are then pulverized into powder, given back to the family. There are protocols of safety. There are protocols of identification followed. So it is a very respectful process compared to what perhaps would have been available to many people through history uh, who did cremate remains. So this is saying, this question, are, is, there a, is there a stand that we as a church or a church group or what is a Christian viewpoint about cremation? Second question says, 1 Corinthians 15, earthly bodies and spiritual bodies. Will our spiritual bodies have flesh and blood like our earthly bodies? If not, what will our spiritual bodies be like? It says bodies. So I assume it is not just something floating around. And I say amen to that. It does say bodies. And that is our joy and our hope uh, that we're not going to just be floating around. And it is certainly what the Bible teaches us that someday in the future, we're going to locomote and we're going to think and we're going to process life in bodies. And they will be similar in some ways, I take it, and they will be different in some ways. And nobody knows exactly all of what the ramifications of that are, but it's going to be pretty exciting to be able to put aside some of the limitations of this body, which we just read, sown in weakness and raised in power, and to be able to put aside some of those weaknesses and, and limitations and say, nothing's going to hold me back. If I want to do it, I'm going to go do it, and uh, we cannot currently do that. So let's go back to the cremation plot. Um, you know, this phrase, I, I, I just wanted to use it because today it has been used as a watchword for abortion and the abortion activists. This is my body. Stay away from my body. Uh, the government doesn't have a right to be interfered with my body. Of course, these are the same words Jesus used when he gave to his disciples these reminders of his death and his resurrection this is my body that is broken for you and i think as humans that that phrase just expresses to us our concern our delight and our wonder at what our future is we say this is my body I'm, i mean this is all i know this is the only home that 
I've ever had. And we all have bodies that are different, just like some birds put their nests up on the limbs and some hang them under the limbs. Some of us have bodies of one type and some of us have bodies of different type. But this is, it's, it's, it's our, it, it is our environment in which we move and live and, and, and exist. And so we all want to know and we all have a stake in this and we all are interested and we all care about what the body is going to, what is going to happen after we die and we no longer are in our body. Um, and we actually become separated from our body. Um, so the disposal of that dead body is the issue. And I, I don't know how to say this any more clear than this. But I do not believe, and I do not, I do not believe the Bible describes or specifies in any way any spiritual that's attached to the way our body is disposed of, the way our body is, what happens to our body after we die. I've done a lot of reading um, about this issue, about this subject. I've done a lot, I've, of, of course, I've read, read the scriptures. There's burials described in the scriptures. There are uh, a cremation or two described in the scriptures. There are burnings of dead bodies for other purposes and with other things in mind that are described in scriptures. But nowhere do I find in the scriptures itself a direction that says this is how God expects you to deal with or dispose of the human body after it's died. <clears throat> um, I... In my thinking, I came to this phrase of Jesus, and it seemed to me that it kind of expressed the attitude that Jesus had, reflects our attitude overall that we should have, in that we should be a whole lot more concerned about what we do with our bodies while we live than what happens to our bodies when they're dead and they're no longer functioning. And Jesus, in a kind of careless manner, it seems like, fairly casual way, said, let the dead bury their dead. And, and it's kind of a harsh statement in a way. It almost sounds disrespectful. The guy said, my father died, I want to follow you, but I, I first need to go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. But whatever he meant and whatever that phrase contains, I think the, the attitude in relationship to this is that there's more important issues in living, there's more important choices in reflecting God's glory in, in my living than what it happens to my body when I die. And of course, I think we all would agree, no matter what our agreement about or whether we can agree about this issue of cremation, and it is controversial, has been controversial. Um, and I'm saying I think it should be, it should not be controversial. Because it seems to me that, that Jesus was saying there, implying, wasn't the main point, but his implication is, that body is dead, no longer matters. It, it's no longer, uh, we, we care for the body, we realize the body is the temple of the spirit, we, we, we care for the body uh, through nutrition and through other ways. 
But when that body has died, it is, it is no longer a body of the spirit. It's no longer a housing your spirit. It is no, it is, it is no longer a, a temple for anything. It has ceased to function. It could not any longer fulfill its role. And that's when the Lord removes our spirit from that body. Because it's no longer able to serve the spirit. And so I think the implication of Jesus when he said that is really doesn't matter. Um, there's, there's other issues more important for you in this moment than superintending that process, it, it, as, he, as he said this to this young man. <clears throat> so when I say here the state of one's remains is relatively unimportant, I underline relatively, I do not mean that we shouldn't care or be concerned or seek to show honor and respect and dignity to those who died by caring for or having a service or a, um, caring for their remains in a way that's honorable and respectful. I do not mean that at all. I'm simply saying relatively to some other things, how that is handled is less important than, uh, than how we live and so forth. So... The truth of the matter is that both preservation of the body by burying it, and it, which is an attempt to preserve it, whether it's mummified, whether it's embalmed or whatever, uh, <clears throat> the burial of a body is in essence a way of saying we're just going to put off the inevitable. We understand eventually that decay happens, but as long as possible, we want to prevent that. We don't want to do anything. Let God do what he wants in his time, but we're just going to try to keep everything together. Um, and so that's why I say that burial is aimed more at preserving the body where uh, cremation just jump starts this process and says eventually it's going to decay uh, rather, than, rather than let this process have a long time. Let's just get this over with right now. And, and therefore... Um, it's not aimed at preserving the body, but of disposing of the body. Um, the facts of history are that both practices have been widespread and prominent and accepted throughout the ages and the culture. Some cultures much more clinging to one than the other. But the division that I have often heard and often heard people claim that the Christian community and the Christian cultures have buried their dead and the pagan cultures um, have pagan tribes and pagan cultures have cremated their dead is simply not a truthful, honest way of looking at history. I have, I have done a lot of reading about it. You know, one of the, it's not true, in other words, that pagan cultures cremate and Jewish or Christian cultures bury. That's an untrue statement. <clears throat> um, one of the, one of the uh, things that archaeologists depend on and anthropologists to, under, to learn about the ancient world, even about their religion or their lack of religion, is the burial places, the tombs, the burial chambers. They dig them up and they learn all kinds of things about what these people believed and what they were like and so forth. If it was true that the pagan cultures only cremated their dead, they wouldn't have any burial chambers. There would be no tombs for the archaeologists to, to find out about their cultures through and, and so forth. 
And as I point out here in these, these notes here, even though Jesus used the term burial customs of the Jews, he said the Jews have their burial customs. That does not mean and does not imply and certainly does, is not truthful that all of the Jews were buried because there have been many, many evidences found of Palestine in New Testament times, where Jesus lived and when he lived, of burial urns with ashes. And, and we realize that cremation also happened. Jesus said they have their burial customs. That doesn't mean that they didn't also have their crema cremation customs. I put there in your sermon notes um, a little box about an Old Testament cremation of a cow of a heifer, as was used as a purification ritual. You can read it. I put some scriptures there. I reference this only to make this point. It seems to me that if burning of the body, reducing of the body to ashes, that if this is a pagan symbol, if this is an ungodly practice, it seems inconceivable to me that God would prescribe it as part of a ceremony, uh, as part of a, of, of, a, of, of a method of obtaining innocence and purity in his sight, which he called a ritual of purification. It is described not only in the Old Testament, it is described in the New Testament. Now understand, it's an animal, it's not a person. I understand that. But I'm simply saying, if the idea that burning a body until there was nothing to remain except ashes. By the way, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, that is not a biblical phrase. Just want to throw that in there. I've often heard people, you know, like it says in the Bible, ashes to ashes. No, it doesn't. But it does say dust to dust, and you are the dust, and to the dust you will return. So, its, it's aim is right, but the wording is not really there. <coughs> It's said that this, this process or this, this ritual sanctified people. They came through this ritual to be sanctified. I'm only saying if this was such a pagan symbol, then it's in inconceivable to me that God would have uh, asked them and prescribed that they would use it in this way. One of the objections that I've heard used to... Uh, cremation as a way of dealing with bodies after death is that fire is a symbol of evil. Fire is a symbol of judgment. Fire is, a, uh, is an expression of God's judgment. Indeed, it is. I would not disagree with that. That many places in the Old Testament, the, uh, the, the issue of fire or the, the, the fire of God would break out and and God would express his anger through the use or the symbolism of fire. And, and so that, that is certainly true. It's also true that in the Old Testament it has often been confused, or at least people who have talked about this issue with me, have often confused what the Old Testament severely condemns. And that is the passing of your children through the fire or the fire of Molech. These were not cremations, I assure you. These were child sacrifices. In some cases, these were uh, capital punishments being carried out. They didn't get the electric chair, they got the fire. Horrible idea. And the Lord, horrible thoughts and, 
and reality. And, and the idea is that parents would, um, and, and some desperate appeal to a God, would offer their child as a sacrifice in the fire is unthinkable to us. And the Lord said, it is unthinkable to me. And, uh, and, and, and his people were strictly forbidden against doing this. But that's very different reality than cremating a body uh, that is already dead. But it is true that fire is used in the scripture as a symbol of judgment. I understand that. I personally agree with that and accept that. However, the other side that I, I don't usually hear in these arguments is that fire is also a symbol used in many different ways of God and his power and his cleansing and his, ju- and, and his goodness and, and so forth. And, and there, are, there are people who went up to the Lord in chariots of fire. We read about Elijah in, in this instance. Um, we read about Elisha who, had the, who prayed and said, Oh God, open his eyes that he can see what's around him. And the Lord opened his eyes and he saw the angels and the chariots of fire around him. And I, I'm simply saying not all fire is presented as bad in the Old Testament or in the Scripture. Some of it is connected with the power and the glory of the Lord. And so to say that, um, therefore, to put fire to a dead body is disrespectful or dishonoring to God, it doesn't seem to me is, is, is true. Um, and the case of King Saul just leaves more questions, it seems, almost than answers. But you're familiar with this case where the body was being, had been mutilated and some of King Saul's friends heard and heard about this, and they went over there. And, and rather than allowing this body to be continually mutilated, they said, we're going to cremate it. And that'll stop this process. And there's nothing more they can do to mutilate this body because we will reduce it to ashes. And so out of great respect and veneration and love for King Saul, they cremated his body. That seems to me to speak to the issue of, of, of the fact that people can do this with great respect and love for their families and that it's not in itself. And this is one of the chief arguments against this is that uh, against cremation is that it's disrespectful to that dead person. I read, I, I can't tell you how many articles just to, in trying to be able to put together some thoughts for this morning. I read many articles um, about this issue by Christian professors and, and authors and pastors and theologians, almost all of them, the vast majority, said there is no scriptural restraint or there is no scriptural reason that a body of a Christian cannot be cremated, that there isn't a, there's not a, a, a scriptural prohibition against this at all. The few, and it was very few, who said, yes, the Bible says this is wrong, never told me where the Bible said it was wrong. And I was listening for this and watching for this. And what they would say always came down to something like, it's disrespectful for that dead person. Uh, There's a moral obligation for respect. I agree. There is. But... You still didn't give me a, a scriptural, theological... In fact, this is, this is a bit bizarre. 
the only, I can only discover three groups that actually stand, take a stand against cremation, cremation on a theological basis based on what it is that they believe about the inner connection of the body and the spirit. One of them is the Eastern Orthodox division of the Christian community. You know, the Christian church around the world is basically divided into a Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox have a different view of the body and soul connection. They feel that they're so interconnected. This is why they use a lot of icons in their worship. There's a lot of interconnection, and it's impossible to fully ever extricate the body from the soul. I find this very bizarre. I say to myself, what do they do about an autopsy, for example? Or what would they do about a, the cadaver, a use of a, of a body for medical purposes or, or forensics or uh, a criminal investigation um, or this kind of thing? Um, I'm not sure where they stand on that. But the other two groups, the other two groups that forbid this practice are the Mormon church and the Islamic religion. No other groups, no other religion, no other groups within Christianity say in, in theologically that they forbid people to do it. Only the Eastern Orthodox, only the, the Mormons, and, on, uh, and only the, uh, the, Islam, the, uh, the Islamic religion. So that's kind of some strange bedfellows. But um, the argument needs to be from theology. It needs to be from Scripture, not from, not from simply from uh, personal, not simply from personal preferences. Nowhere does the Bible say that it's a strange or dishonoring or shameful or pagan practice. Now, you may feel that way about it, your own self. And if so, my goal is not to persuade you to have your body cremated. It's rather to explain to you that God does not forbid this so that, uh, so that you feel that you can make your decision. Okay. Uh, I want to mention uh, just several principles that I believe apply to this issue of choosing how we deal with the remains of our body. First one is this. Basically, the, the principle in the New Testament is that God cares about my motives more than my methods. This is a principle that's taught all over the New Testament that the assessment of my life will not be based on what methods I use to do any particular thing, but upon the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. That's what it says in Hebrews 4. So, one of the statements of that by Paul is, all food is clean. There's no particular method. There's no particular type of food. There's no particular act in itself that is wrong with beyond question. It all depends on my attitude toward it, the reason and the circumstance and the motivation with which I enter into it. So Paul said, look, he's using the issue of eating meat. And he said, don't even, if it don't bother you, don't even ask questions. Just eat the meat. All food is clean, Jesus said to the Pharisees. There's nothing you can eat or put in your body that's going to make you unclean. If you're unclean, it's because of the inside. The principle of that is that a method doesn't matter, but a motive matters. 
And so there's no one method, whether it's burying me in the ground or whether it's burning me, uh, my body. No, n- n- none of those methods in themselves, in themselves are wrong. This is the principle. Here's the second. And these I take from some of the discussions of, of freedom versus limiting freedom in my behavior as a Christian. And what the New Testament says is, look, if you can do it in faith, this is a very important phrase. At the end of Romans 14, it says, anything you can't do in faith, it's sin. If you can do it in faith, do it. Go ahead. If you can do this with a clear conscience of faithfulness that you could say, if God was in your presence in this moment, I do this for your glory. I don't hesitate to say, oh Lord, I do this to honor you. If you can do it in that manner and in that kind of faith, proceed. Feel free. If you cannot do it in that manner, Paul says, don't do it. Because if your conscience is hitching you, throwing you a hitch and saying, this is wrong, this is questionable, that's all the reason why you should find a different method to whatever you're doing. The third issue, the third principle, very quickly, is we're told in these same discussions in Romans and 1 Corinthians that we shouldn't have to go around asking everybody what they think before we make a choice. Do you think this is wrong? Do you think this is wrong? Do you think this is okay? Sometimes, he says, we allow the conscience of other people to place us in a corner because we were so concerned about offending someone else that we didn't do what we felt free and right about doing ourselves. And he says, then the conscience of someone else is actually running your life. And he says, don't be taken captive by someone else's conscience in this discussion. So I think this is a principle that there are issues that are always going to be divisive and are always going to have different opinions about. And sometimes the best thing that I can do is to say, oh, Lord, guide me, show me what decision is right for me. And If others ask you or complain to you, you can explain, but you don't always have to ask first, what do you think? Do you think this would be wrong? Because 50% are going to say yes, 50% are going to say no. And therefore, we can allow ourselves to be carried along by the conscience of others rather than asking about God's leading for ourselves. Okay. The Bible's method, and this is, I'm done here with this part. Don't get excited. It's only, it's only 28 after. The Bible's method, I'm sorry, the Bible's focus. This is, this is the scripture that was asked about, so we'll just read, read this scripture next. It's not on the, on the method of our disconnecting from this life and our body, but it's on the miracle of the resurrection. The, and that's, that's the joy, and that's the... Uh, the, the, the wonderful hope that we have because we do know and understand all of us that many people don't even have this choice of what's going to happen to their body. Many people have fallen or died in ways and means that nobody even knows what or whatever happened to their body. So it isn't like uh, if, if, if 
if our destiny hinged so much upon uh, whether we're buried or whether we're cremated or how, we're, how our, our body is handled, then um, may God help those poor folks that we don't even know what happened to their body. And so this is also, this is, this is the point that I want to make is that the miracle of the resurrection is what the Bible talks about. And so that's what this question is saying. Well, what about these new bodies that we're told that we're going to get? Um, what are they going to be like and so forth? And it, re, it uses the term in 1 Corinthians 15, we pass, the passage that we read with Josh leading us. It uses the term over and over, natural body, suksikos, and spiritual body, pneumatikos. These are, these are just different realms where a body can function. A physical body can only function in this physical world. So if you took me whoop, up like to the moon or somewhere, I just die because my body is programmed for the physical environment of this world. If you take me up there, it's okay. Just give me a spacesuit or something, all right? Because I, I, I don't have any way of my... When I'm out of my physical realm, I don't have any way of handling it. A spiritual body, or the, the word is spiritual, but let me use the word heavenly for a second. A heavenly body can handle heaven. It can handle other environments other than this environment. It can handle the spiritual world. Now, why would you need a body in a spiritual world? I don't know. Spirits, I always thought floated around, as this thing said, as this question said, and, and, and didn't need a body. They were just kind of invisibly out there somewhere. But what if our body could move around like that? What if our body could move back and forth between a physical place here and a heavenly spiritual place, and we could, we could move at the speed of thought, or of we could, we could think and be somewhere else, or we could... What if we had a body that could handle like that? That's hard for us to even envision or imagine. I think this is the kind of thing that it's telling us about this spiritual body. It can handle and be at home in the spiritual world. The illustration, which we just read, uses a plant, of, of a seed in the plant. And what it says is that... When you put a seed in the ground, it dies, and it decays. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. So to me, the, the, the image is one of the same thing as when humans die. This body that we have, it's just going to continue to, um, the, going to con the, continue the process. It really started by the moment we were born, I guess. That the decay, the disorder, uh, the entropy that is part of the fallen world is just going to grow and grow and grow. And our body is just going to collapse. It's going to collapse into destruction. I'm sad to let you know this. I'm, I'm sorry to break this to you. It's uh, not what I was hoping to tell you this morning. But this is the sadness of the world in which we live. What he goes on and says, but it when it dies, it becomes something else of a different form. And he uses the illustration there of wheat or of corn. 
And we all know we're in the summer growing season right now. We look around us at these beautiful fields of corn or soybeans. We all know that what we see isn't what we started with. When the farmer put that seed in the ground, a tremendous transformation took place. The seed rotted. The seed disappeared. Oh, oh, but what emerged was, was what? Whatever was, it surely didn't look like the seed. But guess what? It exactly is the seed. It's the seed being transformed into something different. But guess what? This is the point that Paul's making. It's still the same identification or still the same genetically from the seed to the plant. Is the same identity. Now we don't we don't know unless we take Jesus as our prototype, which I surely do, what exactly these new bodies will look like or what how they'll function. But we know they'll be different. This is and yet we know that they will be the same. And Paul's stressing here is this is the continuity of life from the day I die and my body decays to the day that I get a new body that may look and function different, I will still be me. I will still be myself. You know, um, let me illustrate for a second. Um, once in a while, I'll have a funeral and a wedding on the same day. In fact, this happened yesterday. <clears throat> I had a funeral and a wedding. I've had it happen numerous times. Only once that I recall... Was it the same family? Um, some of you know, remember Steve Freeman. Steve and Connie Freeman. And Steve's grandfather, Jake Binkley, passed away just uh, two or three days before Steve and Connie's wedding. And there were numerous folks already coming in for the wedding. So the family was going to be gathered anyway. And though it seemed a bit bizarre to have the funeral of Grandpap on the same day, this was when it worked, and the family was here. And so they did. They had uh, Steve's grandfather's funeral only a couple hours, like maybe two hours prior to the wedding. It was very tight. And Steve, of course, loved his grandfather. He was close to his grandfather. He was a pallbearer for his grandfather. And... Then he came from the funeral home here for his wedding, the happiest day of his life. And the time was tight. We didn't have a lot of time. And I remember Steve and I went back in this room back behind here and we changed from the funeral for the wedding. And I will never forget, Steve had on a black suit. He was in grief and mourning for his grandfather. And he took off that black suit and he put on a white tuxedo. And he went from tears on his face to when he came out here and here was Connie and her family to smiles. I'll never forget it. Never. How it was that this guy completely changed his looks. He went from a black suit to a white tuxedo and he was still the same guy. And his emotions went from being torn and, and sorrowful to being fulfilled and, 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 and joyful. In a, a, a short matter of time, his, his, his whole 
his whole life had, had just had to be wrenched around in, a, in another direction, in a 180-degree direction. But it's still Steve. Still the same exact person. And so this is a little bit what I think he's saying here. We're going to take off this black suit. We're going to put on a white tux. We're going to shed these tears, and we're going to have uh, rejoicing. But we'll still be us. And we will, we will still, the continuity will be greater than the contrast. Now, what is the contrast? This is, of what, he, this is what he closes this chapter with, where he compares or he contrasts. And we, we, we said some of this earlier. He said, I'm going to take off the perishable, and I'm going to put on the imperishable. And, uh, and, and that should make us all want to jump up and say, woohoo! Because, because, you know, we live in this world of death and demise, and we, we constantly see the turnover, and we read the paper, and we, we see somebody who makes it to 100 years as a hero, and we say, good for you. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're battling the odds, but we all know eventually that the odds are going to get them, and that they are going to die, and that all of the perishable things is, is, is part of this life. He says we will take all that we the the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. And he also talks about what I call here a value, the value that we have. You know, from the fall, from the fall of Adam and Eve, we as human beings have never been able to honor God as we should be able to. The co- the capacity is not there because we're damaged goods. And we, we live in, as far as how God made us with our potential and how we are, we, we're dishonoring to God. He created us to be so much more than what we are able to be. But this is what Paul says is going to happen in that day and at that time. I am sown in dishonor, but I will be raised in glory. I will, be, I will be able to glorify God with the kind of capacity that I should have had from the start on that day, in that time. I am sown in weakness, but I will be raised in power. Sown means this life. Sown means everything up to the grave. And that's the seed be, that, that will be sowed. But that is not what will be raised. I will be raised in power. Uh, Here I'm vulnerable to weakness and infections and accidents and infirmities of of all kinds. You know, Jesus himself said about us as humans, he said this to his disciples and it wasn't a compliment. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? There's going to be a day when you'll never have to say that again. You're going to say the spirit is willing and the flesh can handle it. Because we will be raised in power, not weakness. We will be raised with bodies that will do, have every capacity to do the bidding of our mind. That's pretty exciting. But this is a different realm. And so he says, we're sown a natural body. We're given, first of all, as a seed form in this life. We're given this natural body. But that's just a seed. 
And the seed goes through this process that we just talked about. And it comes into a different form for a different realm, for a different, for a different future. I take it when we read about Jesus, and we, we've all looked at this and thought about this, how he would just suddenly be among his disciples and he would suddenly be gone. And it didn't matter if the door was open or shut or locked or unlocked. It didn't matter. He would just, he would eat. He said, give me some fish. You think I'm a ghost? You think that? Well, give me some fish. I'll eat. He, he, he proved that it was a body. He wasn't an illusion. He proved to them that he had a body. But he also proved to them that this body was like no body they ever saw. That this was a resurrected body. This was a a body able to handle a spiritual reality and a spiritual location. So, let me close with some scripture verses that simply remind us of this future and its resurrection and the resurrection of, its, of a body. Your dead will live. This is in Isaiah 26. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust will wake up and shout for joy. Isn't that, isn't that what? Isn't that what it's about? That we can die, live and die with such confidence and such hope. Here's a, a familiar verse from Daniel. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered in multitudes who sleep. Um, I think, anyway, I, I, multitudes who sleep are going to wake up. That's good news. That's wonderful news. Jesus phrased it like this, you're just going to come out of your grave, you're going to hear a voice, you're going to hear a noise, you're going to, the body, the, the, our spirits will, will be with the Lord, when we, when we die, our spirits immediately go into the Lord's presence, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but someday the Lord will return, we're told, in several places in the New Testament, bringing with him all of those who've fallen asleep. And those spirits and those bodies are going to be hooked up together, but the bodies will be the new bodies. They will be the resurrected bodies. And, and so Jesus said it like this, that we're going to come out of our graves because in bodily form, a new spiritual body form, we're going to hear a voice and we're going to rise and so forth. And this, I think, is is sort of a, a culminating statement in the New Testament. It says everything that we eagerly wait for, everything that we hope for, in fact, this is the hope in which we are saved. It is the hope of a resurrection. It is the hope that the death is not the end. And this body, though it, may be de- though it may decay, it will not know corruption, it says in Psalm 16. And God does not abandon us at this point. Can we uh, take a moment and pray? And we, I, I'd like to sing a verse of this closing song. Heavenly Father, this, this is an exciting hope for us. It's a, a, a lot for us to think about, but we need to think about it sometimes on the fly because we're moving fastly along the process. And we, someday we'll enter your presence, and no one can stop us, and we will be stopped by no one else, and we'll leave all this behind, and we'll leave all of our friends and our loved ones and our family behind. We will be in your presence. And we won't be worried about a, a particular deal about our own bodies at that point. We'll just be surrounded by the love and the grace and the glory and the beauty. And then someday, when there's a, 
a great spasm in this universe, and the world is destroyed by fire and the new heavens and the new earth, and we're all ready. Then we're going to get a new body, and we're going to get a second go-round. This, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere else beyond the blue. We, we, can, we can hardly fathom it. We just get little glimpses. But, Lord, it's exciting, and we rest all of our hope and all of our trust there. And thank you for these precious promises in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing verse 1 of I'll Fly Away. We know that these bodies as we currently have can fly, but we look forward to someday bodies that can fly, fly high, fly all the way with you to your heaven. Keep us, guide us, let us be generous to one another in our, in our judgments upon one another about these issues, these matters. Let us love and be unified together, even above and beyond the, dis the differences of opinions that we have. And let your power keep us until the day when we hear that voice and we rise from our graves. In Jesus' name, amen.